morning. My name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd like to welcome you here uh, this morning. I'm glad that you have and are gathering uh, with us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We are continuing our series as we walk through the book of Acts. As we walk through the book of Acts, we are continuing our series. We are in chapter 9, verses 32. So Acts chapter 9, verse 32, and we'll go all the way through to Acts chapter 10, through Acts chapter 10. So in the book of Acts, just to kind of bring you up to speed, um, Jesus has been resurrected. He is... Um, he is starting, he's appeared to over 500 witnesses. Uh, he goes and he tells his disciples, hey, uh, I want you to carry the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the world. I want you to take and spread this gospel all throughout the nations as you know it. And so the 120 disciples, Jesus ascends into heaven, the 120 go and they gather in an upper room. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and uh, descends upon them and they go and become faithful in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ throughout Jerusalem. And, uh, and through that, as, the, as in the known world, they, uh, the Bible says that they turn the world upside down through their preaching and uh, preaching of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were just uneducated, ordinary men, they were called, but yet they did extraordinary things through the power of Christ Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, indwelling them that would change the world uh, as they knew it and as we know it today. And as the church was being established, um, there was this guy named Saul who was ravaging the church. He was actually going from house to house and arresting those who were gathered together to, to worship Christ and to do much of what we are doing here this morning. He went and he, he started ravaging the church. And God, in an extraordinary way, as we, as we lead up to Acts chapter 9 here, God, in an extraordinary way, um, uh, came and exposed Himself uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and said, uh, said Saul, uh, Jesus to Saul said, Hey, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, through that revelation of who Christ Jesus was, he became saved. And, uh, and we kind of pick up now at the, uh, at, after, after Paul's conversion, or Saul's conversion, who, who becomes later becomes Paul. Um, we see that he begins to, after his conversion, he begins to walk in faithfulness. He starts proclaiming Jesus in synagogues, and they're like, who is this guy? Wait a minute, I thought he was the one that was persecuting the church. So the title for my sermon today is A Display of Faithfulness. Where do we go from here? What's, what's happening here in Acts chapter 9 uh, in verse 32 after this, after this conversion as we lead up to here? And as we think about what is faithfulness, as we discuss what we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Before I begin to read, I want to think about what it means to, uh, to be faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Like we see, we see we, 
you see a lot of people saying, "Hey, I just want to be more faithful." Like on my Facebook feed for New Year's e- for for New Year's resolutions, I would say that most of the Christians that I was uh, that are friends of mine, uh, or I won't say most, some of the Christians that are friends of mine, uh, uh, they were they were putting up there, "I just want to be more faithful this year in 2020." Like if I could do anything in 2020, I just want to be more faithful in my uh, in my walk with the Lord. I want to be I want to be found faithful in in uh, reading my Bible more. I want to make sure I, I have a, a good reading plan. I want to be more faithful in 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 my prayer time, my quiet time uh, of when I get alone with the Lord. I just I want to be more faithful. And I think it's safe to say that our desire as Christians is to always be found faithful. Like we want to be, we want to be found faithful. So the question that I have is: Is what does faithfulness look like? What does faithfulness look like? To be faithful is to be is to be reliable. It's to be steadfast in our faithfulness. It's to be unwavering in what we believe. You see, we know that faithfulness is an attribute of God. We know that all His promises come to fruition, that He is the same yesterday, the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that. For Christians, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit listed out in Galatians is faithfulness. Paul called the saints at Ephesus and Colossae faithful brothers and sisters. When we appear before God, we long to hear the words from Jesus that says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. So we are called to be unwavering in our faith. We are called to be unmovable in our walk with Christ. We are to walk in the fear of the Lord. And so in our passage this week, it's going to detail some ways that we can walk in faithfulness and display our love for God as we remain steadfast despite the circumstances. So our passage this week, we're going to uh, think about ways that we can walk in faithfulness and display our love for God as we remain steadfast despite the circumstances. So today our passage is fairly long. So instead of reading the passage like we normally do and then come back and walking through it, we're just going to read and walk through it. As we read through it, I'm just going to walk through it with us. So we're going to pick up in Acts 9.32. Acts 9.32. And here is the main idea of the message as we get ready to read it. If you're taking notes, this is kind of the, the main idea of the message. For Christians to truly display faithfulness, for Christians to truly display faithfulness, we must trust in ourselves less and trust in God more. We must trust in ourselves less and trust in God more. If we believe that God is faithful and fulfills all His promises, then we must trust Him with everything. I don't know if you're like me, but there's some things that I, I just, you know, some things I just like to hold on to. I keep very close. I don't want to give up. But yet, God tells us that we must trust Him with everything. It's my first point this morning is this, and we'll see it in Acts 9, 32 through 43, is Christians display faithfulness by trusting in Jesus' power over their own. 
Christians display faithfulness by trusting in Jesus' power over their own. Verse 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Anus, bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Anus, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that, that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So one of the things that we can see in this passage, and one of the things we know about Peter is that he was an apostle and he had been with Jesus. And the Lord had granted him many things. matter of fact, He had granted to Peter the keys, the keys to the kingdom, which was his church, as Jesus being the cornerstone. But yet, as Peter, as he, as he goes from church to church, as, as a fear, as you see in verse 31, that the, the church, the people that made up the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they had peace and was being built up. And the, the, the saints were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church was growing. And Peter was walking throughout and among them. He was going back and forth from church to church. And he came down to the saints at Lydda, the church plant that was there. And he found a man who had been bedridden. And, and Peter didn't say, hey, rise, you are made well in his own volition. But he said, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter knew that it wasn't his own power that would be able to hear, heal Aeneas, but it would be the power of Jesus Christ. And through that power in Jesus Christ, Aeneas was healed of his uh, bedridden, of his paralysis, and immediately he rose. And God used it to, to bring about a salvation to Lydda and the immediate area of Sharon. So Peter did not trust in himself, but he trusted in the name of Jesus. Peter trusts that God would bring healing to, to both of these people, not just Aeneas, but as you see, Tabitha here in the next section. She was full of good works and acts of charity, but she became ill and died, and yet, and so the, the church sent for her, sent for Peter. 
And Peter comes and he says, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows, he, they stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. And Peter said, look, you guys go outside. He doesn't say to Tabitha or Dorcas, however you want to call her name, doesn't say to her, arise. But he kneels down humbly and he prays. He turns to the body that was dead, that was lying lifeless, and he said, Tabitha, arise. And so he, this, in Jesus' name, Peter knew the power of Jesus' name. He didn't rely on his own power. He didn't rely on his own faithfulness. But he displayed faithfulness by trusting in Jesus' power over his own power. And one of the things that I want to say here is that we have to be careful in our own walk, though, to make sure that we are not making claims that God will do something that may not be His will. See, it's obviously there could be something that we think should be our will to see something happen, but not God's will. And so we may go around and we may say, I don't know if, you, but there's this, there's this kind of in the churches today, there's this name it and claim it type of religion. Where if I, as a saint of Jesus Christ, if I say something in the power of Jesus' name, then Jesus will be faithful and God will be faithful to make it come true. So therefore, I've, I've prayed in Jesus' name, I'm claiming that it's going to be true, therefore it must be true. But that's not the way that the Bible displays that at all. So when Peter, when he acts here faithfully and responds in Jesus' name, Jesus, uh, the, Jesus was doing something, God was doing something in the church to bring about a great salvation. There was a, a purpose behind what God was doing in faithfully healing these people. But yet, it may not be, as we think about name it and claim it, it may not be God's will to, to do something that we claim He should do. And even as we walk further into Acts, we get to see this. Like in Acts chapter 19, there's this awesome story of the sons of Sceva, right? These sons of Sceva, God, God was doing amazing things through the hands of Paul that even as people were getting his handkerchief and things that he had even touched, they were being healed. So the Lord was doing a work through Paul to bring about salvation to the people there. So even his handkerchiefs, his aprons that his dad touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them, it says. And then there were the sons of Sceva. Sceva was a, was a Jewish priest. And so some of these people, uh, some of his sons, his seven sons came and, and they started to, they started to, to, to go and, and make proclamations to, to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And so here's what they said. It says, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They were looking to cast out a spirit. And then something amazing happens. The evil spirit answered them. He says this, Jesus I know, 
Paul I recognize, but who are you? Like Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt onto all seven of them and mastered them all. That means he, he basically the demonized man beat them to a pulp. Right? So the Bible doesn't say that if you go around and speaking things in Jesus' name, that it's going to come true, that it's going to happen. So we must be careful with this idea that we're going to go around and, and, and think of ways that, 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 that Jesus is going to do something that, that it's not in His will to do. I remember as, as I think about this, mostly, mostly this, this kind of name it and claim it is <clears throat> mostly um, in uh, charismatic circles. These charismatic churches kind of, uh, kind of believe in this way. And I can remember when my, my own mom, who was battling cancer, and battled cancer for eight years, and it was kind of getting to a point where we knew, like unless the Lord did a miracle, He was going to take her away from us. And so I remember our family, we gathered around my mother and we, we prayed. And uh, one of my uncles who was, uh, who was there, uh, he's a, he, he comes from a very charismatic background, and uh, he said, you know, he said, I really believe that because we, 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 we prayed in Jesus' name and we gathered together and we were, we were faithful to do this, I believe that Jesus is going to heal my sister and your mother. And I, I warned him, I said, listen, I was like, the Bible doesn't make promises that way. If God chooses to heal her, He will heal her. But it won't be because we prayed in any certain way. It won't be because we, we claimed it in Jesus' name. It will be because it will be His power and not our own. And so, God did not heal her. And I remember for His faith, He was devastated. He was absolutely devastated. He couldn't believe that God would be so unfaithful to a saint who would pray in Jesus' name. But His theology was off. And I'm thankful that as He got up to speak at my mother's funeral... That God did an amazing work. That through that time, God showed him that the trials that mom had gone through and the suffering that she endured was actually to bring about hope and the salvation of people that she was around. So we have to be careful with how we carry the name of Jesus. We have to display faithfulness, not of our own volition, not of our own power, but of Jesus' power over our sin. And I, I know that as I read this passage, and this passage doesn't necessarily speak to this. But it makes me wonder, you know, it, 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 it calls me to think as I, I read about the healings of different people in the Bible and why God chooses to heal some and not others. 
Why doesn't Jesus' power heal those who I know are suffering immensely? I ask myself this question. I, I even asked the Lord, I, I did ask the Lord why He would not heal my mom. She was faithful as Tabitha. And I know that I realize that there are, are many here who are hurting from physical ailments. There are many here who have endured the loss of loved ones who are hurting. And you may ask the question, why not me or why not my family or why not my friends? Why, why, why not heal them? Why do I have to suffer in this way? Why has God not healed me from my sickness and disease? I've asked this question myself many times when it comes to, to one of my own sons who has endured much suffering, Keegan. The truth is, we don't, we don't know when God may heal sickness and disease. I have seen and heard of God healing people from sicknesses they wouldn't ordinarily have recovered from without divine intervention. And others I have seen continue in their suffering for a long time. But in our suffering, in the trials that come, in the tribulations that are with us, and as we see this in, in Scripture of, of people being healed and others who are not, we must rely on what the Scriptures tell us as it helps us understand God's intention for the trials we are going through. We must have a good theology. In the book of James, he reminds us that our trials of various kinds produce steadfastness. Romans 5.3 puts it this way, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh that he pleaded with the Lord to take away. But God's response was probably not what he wanted or expected to hear. His, God's response to Paul was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So my question to you, is do you trust that God's grace is sufficient for you? Do you trust that Jesus' suffering on the cross was sufficient for you? That He had endured a suffering that He did not deserve, yet did it for us? And so how we suffer is of little thought compared to how Christ suffered for us. So we must have a good theology about who we are in light, of Christ, in light of who God is. So we should trust ourselves less, trust in God and His faithfulness more. Point number two. Christians display faithfulness through their fear of God, their generosity, and their prayers. Give me in verse 10, verse 1, we're going, uh, 1 through 9 here. So Christians place faithfulness through their fear of God, their generosity and prayers. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. 
A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. By the ninth hour of the day, he was clearly he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angels... When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The first thing that I I want to make clear here is that from these set of verses that Cornelius is not a Christian at this point. Cornelius, is, he's not a Christian. But he is a God-fearing man who is extremely religious. I want to dive into that idea a little more in just a few minutes. But know this, that Cornelius trusted God's promises. He trusted God and eventually salvation, that eventually salvation would come. <laughs> And so so we see Cornelius here, and we see that in verse 2, he is a devout man. He is a a, a righteous man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. That means that he gave of money and food and time to the people of his day. So he was a giving man. He was a man who feared God with all his household and led his house to fear the Lord. He gave alms generously to the people. That means he gave of his money, his treasures. And he prayed continually to God. So as a result of his faithfulness in God, the Lord sends him an angel who says your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Cornelius was found faithful. He was faithful in his fear of God. He was faithful in being generous with what God had given him. And he was a man who prayed continually to God. Does this kind of faithfulness mark our lives? Do we display faithfulness through our fear of the Lord? The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is fear of the Lord. Do we give generously? Do we give generously of our time and talents and treasures? Do we give time to pray? Do we, are our lives marked by prayer and continual conversations with the Lord? Are we faithful in this? Do we display this faithfulness through our fear of the Lord and our giving and in our praying continually? Are we to be found faithful as Cornelius is found faithful? So Christians display faithfulness through their fear of God, through their generosity 
and through their prayers. Point three is this. Christians display faithfulness by showing no partiality. Christians display faithfulness by showing no partiality. Look at verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. <coughs> Excuse me. But while they were preparing it, <clears throat> he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he has seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having, uh, having made in inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded to, commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him.
You see, Jesus Christ, as we learn in the book of Ephesians, is the one who broke the dividing wall of hostility. It is Jesus who broke down the dividing walls that that everyone, that every nation would be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That it would not just go to the Jews, but also go to the Gentiles, those who are not under the covenant with God. And we see, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. This was the culmination of what God was trying to show him. That even as Peter walked in, as he, he says to them, look, I am not even supposed to be with you, let alone eat with you, let alone be in the same house as you. I'm not even supposed to associate with you, a Gentile. But yet, God get, told me to come without hesitation and here I am. And here's the reality of what Peter is saying is that I now understand that the gospel is to go to everyone. That it's not just to remain to those who are the Gentiles. Because remember, even as Jesus is telling them that, hey, the gospel is to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. Wait a minute, wait. The gospel goes to Jerusalem and Judea. I get that. But we're actually supposed to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Samaria, a nation that the Jews despise, and to the other ends of the world? And the answer is yes. That we show no partiality. That we're not bound by race. We're not bound by culture. We're not bound by where we grew up and who we associate with. The gospel is for all peoples at all times. It is the good news. It is the power of God to salvation. And if we truly believe that those who who do not believe in the Lord Jesus as, as Savior, as Emmanuel, as God in the flesh, that they will perish if we believe that people who who don't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, that no one that comes to the Father except through Him, then we are found, we must be faithful in showing no partiality. That in every nation, as it says in 35, every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. See, Peter Peter missed this. He's missed this a couple of times. He misses this in Matthew 7. I mean, I'm sorry, Mark 7, where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are trying to challenge Jesus to say, hey, why do, your, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? And he's like, you're trying to bind on my disciples what you made as a man-made law. And he goes on to tell them, he goes on to explain to even to the disciples, to those who are there, and Peter would have been there, that, that no one is clean. 
that all is unclean, that all our good deeds fall short. No one is more deserving than anyone else to hear the good news of Jesus. But Peter was treating the Gentiles as unclean. This would be a hurdle for him that was not easily overcome. As we read in the book of Galatians, Paul had to re- rebuke Peter for trying to make the Gent- for trying to make the Gentiles observe Jewish law. And Paul says, "You're binding on them what should not be bound on them." So this was a hard reality for Peter that the good news of salvation would go to those in every nation that anyone who fears Him and anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord would be acceptable to Christ. And so we must put aside our own partial ideas, our own partiality to those that we may not like very much, to those that we don't want to carry the gospel to. Yet we should display faithfulness by showing no partiality. That the gospel is for all, even these Gentiles. God has done an amazing work here. Point number four is this. Christians display faithfulness by proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. I'll read verse 35 again. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word what He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. We see Peter lay out the gospel for Cornelius. As we see here, what does what is right means trusting in Jesus Christ for saving faith. It is, it is not just doing good deeds, expecting that God would accept them, accept these things as salvation. If that were the case, Cornelia would have already been considered saved and would not need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was already a devout man. He was already, Cornelius was already someone who feared the Lord, who gave generously, who prayed faithfully and continually. Yet, 
He needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So we must display faithfulness by proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. We must be faithful in this. Another thing I want to think about here is Cornelius, was, he was a religious man. Right? We, we know he was a religious man because he was devout. But I know many religious people today. I know that there are those religious people in those days and just like that in our days as well. Men and women who do good deeds hoping that they do just enough to get into heaven. But our good deeds without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are as filthy rags to God. You see, we must stop relying on ourselves to receive the only salvation that God can give and has given through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. You see, all the prophets in verse 43, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. So have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling? Or have you been living with a religion? And you've been religious. You've been doing all the works and acts and deeds. This outward, outward, these outward expression have been, have been things that you have been striving to do. All these good deeds that you've been, you know, what, chalk one up for me. But yet you are unchanged inwardly. I want us to think about this as we think about Cornelius and as we think about the fact that he needed to hear the gospel and he needed to, the Holy Spirit in verse 44 while Peter was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Cornelius needed a heart change. Even though he was devout, even though he feared the Lord, even though that, that he, would, he gave generously, even though he was praying continually to God, he needed a heart change that came from the Spirit and the wisdom and knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. It was that proclamation of the Gospel by Peter that made it necessary for them to be able to believe in who Jesus was. I'm going to tell you about a story about a man named John Wesley. He was a very religious man. He was a church member. He was a minister of the gospel. He belonged to a very religious club at Oxford, which served to be a place for, for perfecting the Christian life. Wesley served as a foreign missionary. He preached faithful sermons. There was one problem with John Wesley. He had no assurance of his salvation. 
It wasn't until Wesley attended a meeting in London where someone was reading a commentary on the book of Romans. And here's what Wesley wrote in his journal. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And as a, as a result of this meeting, as a result of God exposing John Wesley for his religiosity, for all these good things that he was doing, it wasn't until he heard in a new, fresh way that God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ. And I trusted then. And as a result of that trust uh, transformation in John Wesley, there was a start of what's called the Wesleyan Revival that saw many come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and actually helped transform British society through Christian social action. So salvation is not by your works. It's not by your good deeds. Salvation is a heart change. It is hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that brings salvation. It is not just head knowledge. It is not just our best actions to cause God to favor us. Salvation is hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit being poured out on us the way it was for these Gentile believers here. That would give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, and a heart that has changed. And as we are changed by the gospel, we must then be compelled to share the gospel to those who have never heard. We must be faithful in our proclamation of this good news. I mean, how great would it be for all of us to be walking down the street? Let's say we're walking in the mall, right? And someone come up to us and say, Hey, I see that you're a Christian. Would you please tell me the good news of the gospel? How often has that ever happened to you? Like, how great would it be for Peter as he's seeing this vision, as he's thinking about it, and he's going, he's like, he's in his own heart, right? He's confused. He doesn't know inwardly. He's like, he's in turmoil. He's kind of perplexed, right? But then the Holy Spirit says to him and comes and says, Hey, there's three guys at the door that want to come see you. It just doesn't happen that easily for us, right? But yet, God calls us to be faithful to go to them, to go and to make disciples, to go and to preach the good news, to go and proclaim what God has done in us to give our own testimonies. We must be faithful. We must display our faithfulness through preaching and teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We must be faithful in knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Do you believe that? Do you believe like verse 35, 36? As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Is He Lord of your 
life. Is Jesus Lord? If He is, then you know you must proclaim the good news if you're a Christian here. Point number five is this. Be short. Christians display faithfulness through obedience and believers' baptism. Christians display faithfulness through obedience and believers' baptism. Notice what happens as a result of inward change. The believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Something happens here. Peter does something that's amazing. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't ask them to be baptized. He didn't go and say, hey, it's probably a good idea that you become baptized. Peter didn't do that. Peter's command to them in response for what God had done inwardly in their hearts and, and, and as a response of what the Holy Spirit was doing among them as they were speaking in tongues and extolling God for who He was, commanded them that their, their first action to go and to do is to what? To be baptized. There are two ordinances for the church. The first ordinance that we see in response to what God has done inwardly in somebody is to go and to, to be baptized. If, you're, if you become a new Christian, that you should go and your first order of business is to go and be baptized by immersion. That you would faithfully go and do this as commanded by Scripture. That you would walk in obedience to do this. This is what the Bible speaks about and how the Bible talks about and about how the Bible communicates what baptism is. That is, it happens after conversion. Believer's baptism is baptism after conversion. What God has done inwardly in you, this is an outward expression that you would go and be baptized. That you would go under the water as, as representation of dying to yourself. And that you would come out of the water as a, as a sign to others that one day you will be resurrected in the same way that Jesus has been resurrected. It is a beautiful picture of obedience. It is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. And so we must display our faithfulness in Christ Jesus through obedience in obeying what Scripture says in obeying what the Bible says about how we should be baptized. And so we want you to think well about this. We, we want you to think about what baptism looks like for a believer. The other, the other ordinance that we, we're getting ready to partake in is the Lord's Supper, right? So there's baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't celebrate baptism every Sunday, but we do celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday is two commands that we are giving, baptism and Lord's Supper. And the one expression is immediately after conversion and that, that we even say that you, you should not take the Lord's Supper until you have been baptized as a believer. 
Because your first order of business, as we see, Peter, Peter, this is not the first time that Peter says, hey, your first order of business after being converted is to go and be baptized. This was not the first time that he has said this. I do want to caveat and say that baptism does not save you. Jesus alone does that. By grace, through faith, Jesus saves you. But in walking through obedience, in observing obedience, in fearing the Lord, and in in striving for righteousness and holiness, you should observe the first command that God gives us is to be baptized as, as a new Christian. So Christians display faithfulness through obedience and believers' baptism. If, you, if, you, if you're not sure about, hey, I don't, know, I, was, I don't know when I was baptized, or I don't know if I was a Christian when I was baptized, or um, speak, to, speak to myself or uh, any of those who have been up front today about, hey, what does it look like for me to, to obey this, to, 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 to walk in righteousness in this? So as each of us consider our lives and ask ourselves the question, am I being faithful in my devotion to God? And am I displaying faithfulness for others to see? Am I being faithful? Do I walk in faithfulness? Am I, and, and am I putting that on display for others to see? And as we think about this, the main idea of the message this morning and, and, and of not trust, and are trusting ourselves less and trusting in God more, we see in this passage that not only is Peter faithful and Cornelius is faithful and others are faithful, but I want you to see in this, and don't miss this, that ultimately it is God who is orchestrating His faithfulness to His people. In this passage, it is God who is orchestrating the faithfulness in His people. It is through the power of Jesus' name that Aeneas and, and, and Tabitha would rise, one from paralysis, one from death. It is the power of God through salvation that He would come and come to Cornelius and say, hey, go see Simon Peter and he will come and preach a message to you. It is God's faithfulness. His love for us. And we don't want to miss this idea that God is the main character in this story. He is the main character in all of the Bible. He is fulfilling His promises and He is acting according to His will and His faithfulness. And that should be an encouragement to us that, it, that, that God is not only a God who was working in the lives of the saints in the book of Acts, but He continues to work in our lives as well. So we must remember that, that God is God who is faithful. He is steadfast. He is immovable. He does not change. And He calls His Christians, His, His followers to be faithful as well. We will do it imperfectly. We won't get it right all the time, but yet He calls us to be faithful. 
And we display our faithfulness by trusting God above all else. As wise as our friends are, as wise as our best counselors may be. They are no substitute for knowledge of who God is that we find in His Word and as we pray continually to a God who is the great counselor. It is God who is faithful. It is God who is just and right and good and sure and a steady anchor in times where we have no anchor. We have no way. God is that anchor. And He is the hero in this story and throughout all of the Bible. It is His faithfulness. As the musicians come up, I want us to think about our own lives. And ask ourselves the questions, am I being faithful? Am I faithful? Do I trust in God's faithfulness over my own? Do I trust in God more and myself less? Or do I actually trust in myself a pretty good amount? I mean, one of the reasons that Paul was given a thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians, as he describes it to us, is is to remove his pridefulness. It's to remove his pridefulness that he would walk in humility. I know that I am oftentimes given to my own accord to walk in my own pridefulness. That I will walk in my own assurance of who I am. But yet God wants me to make less of me and more of Him. Because He is faithful. He is perfectly faithful. And so we have to put our faith and trust not in ourselves, but in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are faithful above all things, above all else. Well, we know that we fall way short of who You've called us to be, Lord, but yet, Lord, You have called us nonetheless. So, Lord, help us to walk in holiness. Help us to walk in faithfulness and new life has been given to us through Christ Jesus. Our assurance, our hope of salvation. This is good news to us, Lord. Lord, that, uh, that Jesus would be Lord of all in our lives. That He would be first and foremost. And that we would be less. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.